Hey, what's up? This is Michelle Willems coming to you from Brooklyn to talk with Fly Fidelity about some fun hip-hop moments I've had making covers and all kinds of projects. Um, going to tell some stories with Luke. First, First I say, what, what we're going to do. Then, then you say, say, I don't know, what do you want to do? What we're going to do, what you want to do. do. I have an idea. You're going to dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is, is the, the solution. solution. It's the best. Check it out. You want to get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. What's going on and welcome back to another episode. This week we talk to creative director and designer Michelle Willems. Join us for an intimate discussion about the curation and creation behind her iconic imagery, including album covers for artists such as De La Soul, Prince Paul, Cool G Rap, Big L, Breeze Bruin and so many others. I get texts all the time from people like, oh, Jonah Hill was wearing the Stakes Aside t-shirt the whole time that he was filming super bad, and they'll send me a picture of it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then there'll be like a mom on the street and parks up with her kids wearing it, then she's had it since the 90s. And then somebody had it tattooed on their arm, and I got a picture of that. I was just like, you know, you just don't know when when you're working on that stuff that that's what's going to happen to it. You know, so it's kind of interesting. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, no, don't be. Don't be. It's great stuff. Yeah. Love, love to hear it. Why don't we start with where you're from in New okay. York? What was your neighborhood like growing up in terms of experience and graph and absorbing different mediums of art? Mm, um. Honestly, like where I grew up in New York was on Long Island and it was not the most um, ethnically diverse place, to be honest with you. But I started going into the city on my own when I was like maybe 14 or 15. And that's probably when I got more exposed to things just like walking around the city and um you know, seeing uh, billboards in Times Square and just typography everywhere. And I think that's where it started. And, you know, like 
even before that, like when we were kids growing up, like our parents would bring us in the city and we'd go to a museum or a show or something. But I always wanted to go to Times Square because that's where like all the really cool shit was, all the billboards. And I would make my dad drive around Times Square like six times so I could try to sketch like the Calvin Klein billboard that I thought was so cool or try to take pictures of things and then redraw them when I went home. Um, but when I was a kid, like it was, it was really, really early hip hop. Like I probably really didn't discover hip hop until like 82 or 83, maybe. Um, and that was with cassettes of Run DMC and Beastie Boys that my brother brought home. And that was like the beginning of it. So we were just like hanging out in the basement with the boombox listening to like the two first albums of both of them on repeat, just like bugging out. Like, it's so fun. We, you know, like Beastie Boys were the best to me and, and DMC also. And then I saw Run DMC live for the first time um, in, I think it was 84, I was at FIT and they were filming Crush Groove on campus at FIT. So I'm in a few like background scenes, no <laughs> backgrounds of scenes of that. And I signed up to be an extra in the scene that Sheila E is performing Holly Rock. And right. When she and they and they filmed that in Hammerstein Ballroom on 34th Street. So Run DMC were there and they they opened up and that was like the first time I saw live hip hop, and that was it. I was just like hooked. so hooked at that point, and yeah, it was so much fun. Like that was a really fun time. I was like, I don't know, I'm gonna, I know I was gonna be in this like iconic hip hop film when I signed up for it because it wasn't even called Crush Groove at the time and. It was called like Rap Attack or something. So um, that might have been what really sparked me more Got deeply is just like being in the room with that. So super fun. Sheila E, One DMC, The Fat Boys, Curtis Blow, and New Edition in a movie about dreams. Don't you want to be a star? Desires. And the determination to make it to the top. Crush Groove. In the streets, the subways, and the clubs, they created the sound that would turn their world around. They're rocking it the hard way in Crush Groove. Rated R, now playing at a theater near you. We're talking about a time when the term graphic design would have been a foreign concept to you back then as a kid growing up. I'm curious, you mentioned your dad. You mentioned drawing in the car with your dad. Were either of your parents creative back then? I think, I mean, I just really grew up drawing and painting and I didn't know what graphic design was until probably until I was in FIT because I was meeting other people who were in like the advertising and design program. And that was like so intriguing to me, but I was real, I was always really drawn to billboards all the time, like, and the signage in the city. So not even realizing like that that was a career where you're like designing something that large and impactful but i would just try to draw what i was seeing not understanding it and then even to go okay even a little step before that my very very first job was at my father's car wash he owned a car wash on long island 
And he threw me out the front with like a red jumpsuit and towels and shit. And I was drying cars and all that. And it was really fun because I got to drive all the cars and I didn't even have my license. But he also made me design his flyers. And I didn't know that I was designing flyers. I was drawing these like promotional marketing pieces by hand, like before computer with like six different fonts on it that I I would copy out of books or something and create these flyers for him and um you know just learning like teaching myself like hierarchy of information and sure. you know that main focal point and I didn't know what I was I didn't know I was designing I just thought I was drawing so I didn't really understand design until I got into college for fashion illustration at FIT that's where I really started and then transferred to SBA for graphic design. So so you eventually, yeah. like you say, you end up studying fashion illustration for a brief stint and you transfer mm-hmm. to graphic design and you catch this bug. What's going through your head? You're studying under Paula mm-hmm. Shear. At this point, she's yeah. already got several iconic album covers under her belt. What did you learn from yeah. being around such a powerhouse in graphic design? Oh my goodness. She was the best, the meanest, the meanest teacher. No, the second meanest teacher. The first meanest teacher I had was at FIT, who was very, very straightforward. Anna Ishikawa. She was like, Willems, you, you, you draw well, but you're a better designer. Go to SVA and study graphic design. And I was just like, what the fuck? Like, I, I came here to, to become, I wanted to be the next, like, Antonio Lopez, you know? So, but I, I started to understand it. I switched there. I got, you know, after two years, got into Paula's class for portfolio. Before I took her class, I interned with her. Uh, she had her own agency with Terry Capel. And in my junior year, I won an internship with her um, at her agency then. And um, she was just such a badass. And she was so, like, straightforward and to the point that, like, she would make people cry. And and I, I was just like, I'm never going to cry if Paula says something. Like, she was just really put your head on straight. Like, don't do something because it looks cool. Everything has to have intention. Like, every mark on the page mm. needs to mean something or um, be relevant to the concept or don't choose a font just because it's cute. It's like it needs to, like, make sense. And, like, it's just like that, you know, synopsis of what she'd hammered into us that really stuck with me. It's like, you can't just like, you know, make something that has no concept or, or reason. And um, that's what stuck with me the most. And then also the fact that she was a woman in a very like male dominated industry was really inspiring to me because um, she was just such a badass. I don't know. I just love her to this day. And she's, she's still, is like sketching things in notebooks in cabs when she rides from like one meeting to another in the city, you know, like she's still exactly the same person who of course now makes bazillions of dollars doing what she does rightfully so. But I didn't really catch on to her album cover art until after I had been working with her for like two years. And I really started to dig deeper. I was like, Oh wow, I want to do that too. You know, so. So it wasn't until after the fact. 
Yeah, it was like during, you know, like I didn't seek her out because of her album covers. I just sort of discovered that along the way. And um, yeah, it was just real. And like really, it really showed like if you look at her album covers, how conceptual they are without being literal. And I loved that. Like, you know, there's one album cover that is just like a giant scale photo of like a hot dog. Or like a woman's feet with a snake wrapped around it and she looks like she's dead. And it's like it's telling a story without smacking you in the face with it. And I, I just really love that kind of work in general that's not like obvious yeah. and um, makes you think a little more. I walk outside and I see typography everywhere. New York City is a city of signs. Sometimes things written by hands, mismatched, hung up in some peculiar way. And you think, oh my God, can I get up there and please readjust that sign? That's just absolutely awful. The way numbers are on doors, no two the same down the block. All messages are different and they're everywhere. Typography is painting with words. That's my biggest high. It's my crack. Well, speaking of album covers, can you remember the first album that made you realize that cover art was as important, and in in some cases, more important than the album itself? Oh, yes. Um, As important, my first album vinyl that I I think I, I asked for when I was like eight years old was the soundtrack to the movie Tommy by The Who. And I saw the movie when I probably shouldn't have seen the movie because it was like one of those days when like your dad is babysitting you and your brother and sister and he doesn't know what to do with you so he brings you to the movies. (laughs) And he brought us to see Tommy, which was totally inappropriate for like kids at our age. It was just like... This wild ass movie, which is amazing. So my brother and sister are younger than me. They fall asleep. My dad falls asleep. And I'm like bug eyed the whole time. And it was just the most exciting visual thing I had ever seen at that point in my life. And the music was too. So I had to have that album. And if you get the soundtrack to it and you open it up, it's like shattered glass. And then inside each piece of shattered glass is like a piece of the movie and you listen to the album and you like relive it. And I was like, wow. this is a, like, it's just like reliving the movie over and over again. And um, the cover itself was pretty dynamic because it was like Roger Daltrey and he had a plug in his mouth and he had shades on his eyes and the type was like really big. And I still have this album, by the way, like literally sitting next to me in a milk crate. So it, it was so impactful to me at age eight. I think that's how old I was when that happened. So you saw it at age eight. (laughs) On the big screen, yeah. Amazing. (laughs) Elton John and his platform boots and Anne-Margaret and Beans shooting out of a television screen. It was like kind of a nightmare. You know, Tina Turner was in that movie with like snakes and skeletons and shit. It was like the wildest thing I'd ever seen in my life, so... Yeah. Which takes us to your first job in graphic design after you leave mm-hmm. university. What comes first, designing promotional materials for MTV or working at Spin Magazine? 
Um, my first, very first job was with Spin Magazine, oddly enough, and I was really interested in working there because of, at the time, the art director is this man named Gary Kepke, who was an amazing, amazing art director, um, and he called me the day before I graduated, and he's like, can you start tomorrow? And I was like, I have to graduate tomorrow. He's like, okay, start the day after that. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I get this job, like, and I start, like, the day after I graduated. As you do. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just felt like it was amazing because it was also in a time of, like, where Gary Kepke called the landline in your house and your mom answers the phone, you know, and your mom's like, Hey, some guy named Gary from Spin is on the phone and you like, you know, freak out and run down the hall. It was like those days. So it was like a whole other element of drama <laughs> that comes with like getting a job, right? And excitement. So I start working there the day after graduation. The day after that, Gary quits because he has a falling out with Bob Guccione Jr., who's the publisher. And then I'm left there by myself. Like, there's nobody else in the art department. It was just, like, me and the photo editor. And I had to figure it all out. And um, it was – I only stayed there six months, to be honest with you, because it was – besides that happening, it was, like, a very kind of, like, male kind of toxic environment. I had my first – me too experience there and I just you know as excited as I was to work for a magazine that I had actually been reading for years before I got there it was like I I was like I couldn't stay there it just wasn't a great environment and um yeah yeah so I survived I learned a lot (laughs) in six months I mean besides like how to deal with um extreme personalities at an early age also it's like you're setting typography by hand like where you're you know you send it out with a request like I need this column in like you know 12 over 14 with 0.5 kerning and blah 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 like I could I could still set type you know that way which I felt was pretty handy um and then right from there I went to Louise Feely for a little while who is like the extreme opposite of hip-hop and music, but very integral in like design and um, typography, and just we we did a lot of logos and restaurant design there. And then I went to MTV right after that, and I made it into MTV through somebody that I met working with Paula Share, who went to MTV as a manager, and she hired me and brought me in there. So that was like, you know, I won the lottery at that point. Well, MTV, it's an interesting job because we're talking about a time when they're still playing music. How did you feel that <laughs> hip-hop was represented on that network back then? Um, it wasn't represented very, very much. It wasn't at all. Like, we had UMTV rap, so it was very kind of segregated. It wasn't, like, throughout the entire programming of MTV. But, um, you know, we of course, we all wanted to work on Yo MTV raps because <laughs> that was like the coolest thing there. I mean, everything else was cool. Like it was like the first time. I mean, actually, when I was there, it was like around the nine or ten year mark of MTV's existence. So it was still, like you said, very much like music oriented. They played tons and tons of music videos. 
the promos were way out there. Like they would just assign promos to artists to like interpret the MTV logo as they saw it. It wasn't like a fully um, branded experience where you had to stay within these crazy guidelines. It was just like a wild you know, kind of time still. And, but yes, hip hop wasn't really represented. It was just really stuck with like Yo MTV raps and then, you know, the occasional Run DMC or Beastie Boys video or Michael Jackson or Prince, but not tons and tons of representation, like Mm. 24 hours, you know, so... The ironic thing is that you wind up becoming an art director and working on a hip-hop assignment at Sony through somebody you knew at MTV. Can you talk about your experience at Sony, working with artists to conceptualise packaging, collaborating with Mm -hmm. photographers and illustrators, and designing advertising and these marketing materials? Um, yeah, absolutely. So my boss at MTV was married to a design director at Sony and she was really specifically looking for more art directors who were interested in hip hop because at the time, like she didn't have many who wanted to do that. Everybody there was really into like Alice in Chains and Rage Against the Machine. And, you know, like then there were the bigger artists like Mariah Carey and Michael Jackson and stuff. So I was like, please just send me over there. Like, I love you. I've filled my time at MTV. I'd been there maybe three years at at the most and also worked with like Nickelodeon while I was there, which was fun. But I wanted to get more into photo shoots. Um, I was really, really, really super into hip hop, obviously. And then, you know, she needed someone like me there so I went there and I had never done a photo shoot like with any artist before and like the first week they sent me on a shoot to like learn the process of how Sony did photo shoots for packages so my first shoot was with Big L and Danny Clinch was the photographer and this was already figured out before I got there so I was really shadowing the art director Tony Solari on the project but I very much was able to like get into it with them like because first of all Big L amazing one of my top five rappers of all time he was not a very big guy and he's like okay we have to give this guy presence and so we're on a rooftop and he's wearing like a triple fat goose jacket and we're shooting you know Danny was really good at getting the angle to like give him like that larger presence than that he didn't naturally have like physically right so everything we did we tried to like orchestrate it just to make give him more of a presence and scale to match his his skills and and that was like that was so I can't tell you how exciting that was like even if I didn't know everything you know that I needed to know on my first shoot like it sparked so much energy in my brain for like this is what I want to do so taking him from like the rooftop to um this gold frame that's like suspended from a ceiling and framing him almost in like a Kahinde Wiley kind of way like giving him that portraiture feeling and then the shot that I really wanted to be the front cover is on the inside of the package of lifestyles. And that's where he's sitting on a, 
um, steps of a brownstone and his whole crew is with us the whole day and they're just spilling out of the door and, and Big L is the only one who's in focus and they're all like walking out and we're capturing it like, um, you know, frame by frame. And like, to me, that was the cover because he was like very in focus and everybody else was moving around him. And it felt like that great day in Harlem kind of, kind of feeling that was really powerful and it was on his block and, you know, I was really, really fighting for that to be the cover. But what you see as the cover is what he asked for. And he would not, he would not waver on that. Like I tried so many different ways. Like I, I asked Bobito, like, can you ask Big L to reconsider that shot for the cover? You know, it's just like him on the corner and it's dark and his crew is around him and that's his corner, which is ironically the same corner that he got killed on that's right. um, many years later. So it was, you know, like, I don't know. I just like, didn't want that to be the cover so badly. I even asked Lucian. I don't know if you, if you know Lucian from, from the tribe days. Yeah. Luck of Lucian. Right. So Lucian and I were, were really good friends and he was coming up. I was like, Lucian, can you please come up on Tuesday? Cause big L is coming up <laughs> and we got to go over these covers again. And I, and like, help me sell this cover. Cause this is shit. And he's like, I'm, I'm there. And he did a half an hour like speech of why this should be the cover over the other one. And big L was still like, no, <laughs> like, this is the cover. And that's what I threw my hands up. I was like, okay, dude, this is your album. It's your first album. You know, here we go. And I wound up using like all the pictures that I felt were more interesting and introspective or provocative on the inside and for the advertising and for everything else. So like, that was my first experience doing that and I learned like I don't know like 10 years worth of like how to get through packages and advertising and all of that like in that one shot it was amazing amazing do you now find it hard to look at that final shot that final cover given a circumstance mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely I think about that like every time I see even like when you posted it mm -hmm. when you know, when you're posting about us chatting, I was like, wow, man, that cover. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it like it's it's a little haunting for me, to be honest. And, um, you know, I I wish he was still here. Obviously, he was a great person. Like we had some really good chats and he was like very kind of reserved in a way. But you could I don't know. I, I really had a good time talking to different artists and trying to get inside what they're thinking yeah. about when they're making music and, um, you know, listening like really deeply and asking them questions. Like that was some of the best conversations I've had probably in the offices at Sony. And, um, yeah, I really love that. Like I find that so hard to come by these days, you know, now there's like many layers of people between yourself and the artists and connecting with other creatives like that. So I appreciate that. All right, Big L, pardon the uh, technical difficulties. Check it out. Yeah. Check uh -huh. it out. All right. Check if it out. If you want to put your man on too, you can do it together. All right, all right. Yeah. I'm going to set it off like this. Check it out. 
check, yo, check it. Do I got slugs for snitches? No love for bitches. Putting thugs in ditches with my trigger finger itches. I got a rep to make police jet. Known to get a pre-sweat. I never beg for pussy like Keith Sweat. It's Big L, slow hell no. Bitches get fucked on a roof when I ain't got no hotel dough. I'm known for yoking Japs and beating them with smoking gats. Leaving token blacks with broken backs and open caps. So with that bullshit, step to the rear, son. The last thing you want with Big L is a fair one. Cause in a street brawl, I strike men like lightning. You seen what happened in my last fight, friend? I hiked in. I beat kids with lead pipes. I leave trails of dead mics where I'm from. Niggas' juice get ran like red lights. Old folks get mugged and raided. Crimes are drug related. And we live by the street rules that thugs created. Clowns get smoked about a thousand folks. And selling pounds of coke. Front in this town and get a text stuck down your throat. I'm telling you, shit is about to get drastic soon. I'm quick to blast a goon and break a motherfucker like a plastic spoon. I got the looks to make your hottie steal. I keep a shoddy near. It's that nigga with naughty hair who got he fear. Uh-huh. Tracks I'm known to roast until the microphone is Come ghost. On. Props are on the most. I'm leaving niggas comatose. Run and get your brain pinched. Big L, I have your whole gang lynched. I started smoking dust and been insane since. This rap shit was a great gift. The other night some snake rift and got a hot lead facelift. All through high school I had braids. I kept mad blades. Stabbing teachers to death. They gave me bad grades. I cooked the mic like a beef steak cause my technique's great. And I'm the nigga police hating each state cause I'm the neighborhood lamp. Punk brother out, vamp, but fuck around, you find my silk boxes in your mother's yeah. hamper. Cops drop when my Glock makes the pal sound. I'm from a wild town, you know my style clown, so bow down. Word up, say what? Say 95 what? style. I yeah. got my man Jay Z here. Jay Z, boy, step how up you to mean? the mic. Step up to the yeah, Word up, the singles called Put It On, it's in stores right now. Produced by my man Buck Wow. Yeah. And the chorus got Kid Capri. If Big L was the first package that I worked on there, and then right after that was Count Base D, which is where I met Eric Johnson, who shot Stakes as High. And then I did a whole bunch of so-so deaf stuff, which I wasn't really excited about as much as everything else. <laughs> that I, heard. I was like, oh, wow. Okay, crisscross. All right. And, you know, now I appreciate it. But at the time, I was like, damn, I wanted to do this other thing. Um, and then, let's see. And then I think it was Cool G-Rap. And that... That shoot was definitely one for the books as far as how the whole thing panned out and me realizing like, wow, none of this is in my job description, but this is really exciting. (laughs) And like from the very beginning, just, um, you know, researching Cool G Rap a little bit more and like, wow, this guy is really dark and super misogynist. And how am I going to do this without, like, you know, without feeling, without it, like, interrupting, like, the artistic process of it all? You're talking about a guy that maintains a specific vibe. How do you tap into that? What was the process for designing 456? Um, It just, I just knew it had to be something, like, super raw and not overly designed. Like, I just really wanted it to be like as I don't know what's the word it's like as gully as he was Mm. he's like really dark Mm. and so town like his his whole rhyming vibe is like crazy and you know he's definitely up there as far as like I know a lot of rappers who would might call him like one of their top five you know he really had like so many different kinds of skills but like for a woman coming into it being like oh my god he's such a misogynist and like 
kind of violent and dark. And it's like, I had to separate myself from that to like, get to like, he is, he's like iconic and raw and authentic in the set. Like, how are we going to do this? You know? So the beginning of that project, they sent me out to where he was staying and they wouldn't tell me where I was going because there were people looking for him apparently. And he was kind of hiding in Staten Island at the time. So I literally had to put 10 portfolios in a town car and they, the town car took me to where he was and I lugged them all into this condo or whatever. And I went through each one of them with him and explained like why I feel like this photographer could work based on like what your album is and what you want to do and this and that. And we landed on Sue Kwan, which was great. Um, I'm, I guess you're familiar with her work as well because she's shot. She has shot so much early hip hop work that is is really great. And um, didn't she do Mob Deep covers? She, uh, I don't know if she did covers for Mob Deep. She did shoot Mob Deep a lot. She shot a lot of Wu Tang, right. lots of Biggie, Beastie Boys. That's like a whole other conversation because we did a book together last year nice. that we can we can talk about um but so sue and i wound up setting up this shoot with cool g rap and we got transported to newark new jersey to an illegal gambling den um so so there's two of you two women yeah. <laughs> in this illegal gambling den in yes. new jersey what we happens the next only- only women there and it's like sue is sue is the same way it's like separating yourself from like some of the content in the music and the misogyny and like the vibes that you might feel around you being like one of two or the only you know female that's on a set of something and um but we i guess we have that in common where we can like almost like disassociate from like some of the content and like get into like what's the art that we're trying to make what's the creative that needs to happen so we're in this illegal gambling hall we're in a trailer um you know they brought us in a location van to this place and then uh somebody pulls out a gun and they're like we need to hide this before we go in the hall so this person hands me a gun. They're like, can you do something with this? I'm like, yeah, no problem. You know, like, it's like, no <laughs> he problem. just handed me like an anchor or something. I'm like, okay, I got to hide the gun. Where do I go with this? I'm like, all right, I'm going to put it in the freezer of the, in the, in the trailer and like stuff it in a sock and put it in the freezer and no big deal. And then we go inside and then like Nas shows up and Akineli shows up because they're guesting on this album. Yeah. And, um, that was, really amazing too because Nas had just dropped like his first mixtape and and you just knew what was going to happen there and they were talking about Illmatic at work already and so that was a wild day we were just like locked in this in this in this little weird crusty space for like six hours with a whole bunch of dudes and um you know, there. When I look at that cover now, it's funny because when you posted those four covers, I'm like, two of these look timeless, and two of them look very '90s. And I mm. think like the G Rap one <laughs> is the one of the ones that looks very '90s to me. And I'm like, oh, I wish I did this a little differently or that a little differently. But it was still like of the moment kind of 
amazing experience. You know, like the type was was um, drawn off of the typography that you see on money, on like dollar bills or hundred dollar bills or something. And like, that's where that came from. But, you know, I don't know. I think any art director, when you look at something you did like 20 something years ago, you're like, oh my God, why did I do that that <laughs> way? You know, I should have done X, Y, and Z, but you know, it is what it is. I'm still, that was like one of the most wild experiences I've had. Like, I'm just telling you like a few nuggets of what happened that day. (laughs) Nothing really extreme happened, but it's just like hiding a gun. That was like a first for me. And then going into work the next day and you kind of like fill in the art director, the design director is like, how did the shoot go? (laughs) And like, oh, it's great. You know, we got locked in this thing and then I had to hide a gun. And then this other guy showed up and they were shaking the trailer and they almost knocked it over. And they're like, my boss was like, do you need to take a day off or so? Like, are you all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. This is great. It was fun. (laughs) So I felt like I was in the right place. And they they kind of really appreciated that I was like rolling with some wild shit. You know, it was fun. Incredible. Well, you talked about Naz. You talked about Mm Akinelli. A lot of people forget that Naz was there for that photo shoot. And he's actually featured on the cover. Yeah, what what were your impressions working with Nas, who just dropped this incredible album the year prior? Right. Well, the interesting thing about that is, if you look at that cover, you can see that Nas has been um, shadowed a bit. Mm. So he definitely walked in there with a presence. And he was... I don't want to say he was overshadowing, but he was shining like someone who has a presence and you're standing next to Cool G Rap and you're like at like equal level of a presence in a picture. It's like we we literally had to like take it down so that G Rap was really the focus at the end of the day. So that took some work because G Rap's people were not approving it. They're like, all right, Nas is still feeling a little too forward and Akinelli well, he was okay but it was like we really had to work with like the tonality of the picture and that to make sure that G-Rap became you know more front and center next to him that's interesting you, you could just you could just tell like this dude is gonna he's gonna explode the time has come we gotta expand the whole operation Champagne wishes of caviar dreams of penis didn't cream with shells of fish gels from triple beams. I gleam living a life for rally, packing 50 valleys, rocking lizard valleys while we do a drug deal in a dark alley. Up in casinos, just me and my Dino Beamer pushing beamers, then Paulie Arena with two Falatinos. Nas, he runs the whole staff. We count math and steam baths. We've seen half a Millie Jackson out there on the Queen's half. Three major players getting papers by the layers and those that betray us on the block, they rock like Damadeus. Fakers could use the shooting targets soon as the darkness front on the drug market. Bodies get rolled up in the carpet. Those are cheaters trying to beat us. We got hookers with heaters that are straight popping, but more shows in your top than Adidas. The leaders looking straight to me and our Giorgio Armani's. You want a homie and us? You got to come get through a whole army. The Cielo Rollers, Monty Bola, Tippin' Bola, Holin' that Payola. Slinging the Coke without the cola. Me and Black don't fake jacks, but we might sling one. It ain't no shame in our game. We do our thing, son. Living a fast life with fast cars. Everywhere we go, people know who we are. 
A year later, and you wind up working with De La Soul for another incredible album, Stakes is High. Do you think that mm. being from Long Island in any way informed your creative relationship? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, because, um, I mean, the first thing is that, you know, first of all, I came into that situation moving from Sony to Tommy Boy specifically to work on that album. Right. And when I left Sony, I was in the middle of setting up Maxwell's first album. So I set up the team for that, meaning who's going to shoot it, who's the stylist. Uh, shoot, Eric Johnson shot that. Michaela Angela Davis was the stylist. And I'm like, this is the perfect team for Maxwell. They signed off on that. And then I left to go to Tommy Boy just to work on Stakes is High. And that was part of my negotiation to go there. I was like, I would love to come here, but I really just, I want that to be my first project. And Monica Lynch was like, no problem. You got it. Let's do that. And, and that's how I got there. Then the next step is Dela's coming in for our first meeting. And again, like at that time, things were more casual as far as like, Oh, you know, the guys are in the conference room, just go talk to them, you know, whenever you can. Like they're in there all day working on stuff. And so it was it wasn't like meeting them and their manager and their PR and their publicist and entourage. It was just literally the three guys sitting at the table like, what's what are we doing? You know, and um, and I went in there by myself and I was like, hey, you know, and I'm and I'm, you know, I'll be really transparent like I'm a Caucasian female <laughs> and I'm walking into, you know, these guys and it's like hey i'm from long island too they're like yeah cool and then it's like um we start talking and maceo is like notorious for like napping you know he's almost like he's at that time he was like very like i need a nap you know like maybe they were traveling all night but he was he could literally sleep anywhere so he put his head down on the table and i was like oh no this isn't going well <laughs> You know, and meanwhile, I had been listening to their albums like since day one. And you don't want to fangirl out. You don't want to. It's like, let's keep it really like creatively, like creatively connect with each other. So we started talking about Long Island and like, oh, yeah, I used to go to parties in Brentwood. And they're like, you were hanging out in Brentwood. And I was like, yeah, that's where that was like where all the really good parties were and where there was this and that. And that opened up everything that conversation about parties and hip-hop and djs in brentwood on long island in the early 90s that was the turning point and then they were like okay like then i felt like trust came to the table it's like you had to kind of earn their trust a little bit and then at that point it was it was really great because like they had a concept for this album which was great, but it was also very literal in a way that um, the work was just to try to get their trust so that they would consider not doing something that was so literal. And Eric Johnson is really integral and part of this too, because we would brainstorm about how do we get this literal concept, which was, um, you know, young girl, young boy, young girls, just like Hoochie Mama 
and boys just kind of thuggy and they're posing on, you know, like a Lamborghini or something and just trying to show that like the music that you're making right now, like children are watching you and paying attention and like, you know, take accountability for like images that you're putting out there. Like that's what they wanted to convey. And we wanted to go about it less literally. And we pitched a whole bunch of different ideas of how to do that and just landed on something that was like more organic and emotional with children. And then at that point I didn't, I wanted to integrate the type within that image as opposed to just, you know, over designing like a really emotional photograph. So we printed up the t-shirts and, you know, all of that. And that's how that played out. But like gaining their trust to do that was probably like one of the best experiences I had as an art director, just like really building with them on creative. And they were just receptive. We talked a lot about what things meant on the album. And, um, you know, and along the way, like we became friends, like working with them, like, connecting them with stylists like who were friends of mine who worked with PNB Nation who was like a really big clothing company at the time and bringing Dela to the PNB office so PNB could give them clothes for the shoot and like they were so grounded in hip hop culture and um it was just like I don't know it was just like really a beautiful experience for me personally <laughs> not knowing what was going to happen after that like you know and that Spino did a remix of Stakes is High and we're really good friends and we've worked together and you know meeting most deaf meeting uh Jay Dilla like doing a whole native tongues photo shoot that's on the fold out of the album you know with Tribe Called Quest and Jungle Brothers and Jeanne and everything like it was crazy that was really like a high point yeah I guess the key is that you know you're collaborating with other artists like yourself and I imagine that's the most gratifying part of the process ultimately in mm -hmm. giving these sounds a visual was there any resistance yeah. against any of the ideas you were proposed originally were they vocal about not liking um, your ideas no um no there wasn't really I mean some of the other ideas were things like you know, shooting from the perspective of, like, inside of a screen and, like, there are children on the floor, like, they're watching TV, like, sitting on the floor with their chin in their arms, watching, like, mm. really watching. Like, we looked at all these different ideas of, like, how children watch or see images. And, you know, they were they were all really interesting ideas, but then just landing on something that was more organic, I guess, as opposed to a super set up stylized thing felt like the way to go. And it was so different for anything that they had done before that, you know, like their first album was very like, obviously like illustrated and neon. And the second one was like abstract balloon, you know, like, or no, we have the, um, De La Soul is dead. That was a pretty stark illustration. And then balloon mind state was like wildly abstract. And, you know, it made like each one made sense for what it was. And we just went with the idea that made the most sense at the time. And, um, yeah, there wasn't anything that was like, hell no, we won't do that. It was just, it was really like a nice, like, conversation, a lot of conversations and um, trust building along the way. Because, like, we were all so invested, 
you know, myself and Eric and Tommy Boy was really like um, giving us a lot of freedom. And like I said, there were it wasn't like layers and layers of other people's opinions. It was really direct, which feels more rare nowadays yeah. to have that direct connection with an artist to create something like that. That's so, what you want, isn't it? As an artist. Yeah, it doesn't get, yeah. It wasn't like too many cooks in the kitchen. It was like, there's only us five cooks in the kitchen. And, and that's pretty good because three of the cooks are the actual artists themselves, mm. you know, the musicians. So that was like the most ideal, one of the most ideal situations. Perfect. Mm-hmm. I think a big turning point for when visuals started a change in hip-hop was when Puffy and Bad Boy started to think about not mm. just what his artists were going to sound like, but what they would look yeah. like. Can you talk yeah. about, you know, those moments that the stylist and the album cover collided with each other and the impact and direction that moment signified culturally for you? Um. Yeah, I mean... To me, I thought that was such a wild, like, like left turn of where hip hop had been. But again, like, it was kind of exciting because I feel like a lot of it was driven by, um, like, not only Puffy, but like Hype Williams videos, you know, and the stylist who was working on the videos, whose name is escaping me at the moment, but she's like iconic and I'm like losing losing her name but I'll, I'll figure it out but she styled missy in that big giant you know bubble black bubble shiny thing in that video like that missy video was like what the hell is that like that i feel like that and like the busta rhymes video was like the first time we saw that kind of imagery in hip-hop and it was just like really exciting left turn for like what had been going on which was which wasn't bad it was just like wow this is really like flipping the script and you know i i loved all of it i just was like eating that up like crazy like wow this is nuts it's so not like what you expect for hip-hop i wasn't a puffy fan i did do some freelance work with with bad boy which was like right across the street from tommy boy so on my lunch break i would like run from tommy boy over to bad boy and like have a meeting about, you know i was working on some stuff for the locks at one point oh yeah what was that um it was a single i can't remember the name of it but it was like they had already shot the locks and they shot them in shiny suits just like you know those videos that we were seeing they they were like really carrying that shiny suit look throughout yeah. like everything at that point and they handed me like a stack of pictures and they're like we have to use these images make them look tough and you know you know this is like hard this is like the locks was like more hardcore not hardcore but like more down and dirty hip-hop than like some of the other stuff they had like mace and whatever and the more pop oriented hip-hop that they had so i was like all right shiny suits make them look hard like how we can do that and it was not fun it was just that wasn't an ideal experience it was like the opposite of you know a good time for an art director to try to like make that shit work i was just like oh man but um video wise i thought it was really just super fun it's like okay this is unexpected so i appreciated that part of it did you sense any vibe that jada kiss and, and the other guys chic styles they didn't enjoy working at bad boy 
Um, I did it because I didn't really get to meet them. Like I wasn't there for the shoot or any of that. Like they had done the shoot and they gave me like the pictures that were approved to work with for a single cover or something. Like that's what I was working on. Got it. So yeah, I don't have much to say. Going back to Sony versus working at Tommy Boy, what what are those differences <laughs> like, you know, between working with a huge label like Sony and then working on the other <laughs> side with a smaller label like Tommy Boy? Um well, Sony, I mean, Sony was so amazing to me because that was my first record label. So, and then within that, I did a lot of work with Columbia and hip hop and Epic and hip hop. So like both of those labels had um, a lot of different, you know, artists to work with, you know, where Tommy Boy was a much smaller label. And they also had like um, a dance component, which was which was fun to work on too. Like they had like a whole like house music and dance music label within Tommy boy. So that mm. was fun. But Sony had like, I also worked with Cindy Lauper. I worked on like some Fuji singles. I got to work on like a jazz record. Nice. Um, you know, so it was, it was a lot more variety and I got to like dip my toe in each kind of genre of music, which I loved cause I loved everything, you know, besides, you know, not just hip hop, but, that was the main focus for me. And just like seeing, like learning how like a big machine like that works, you know, like the day that Mariah Carey comes into the office, like everybody has to change their screens over to like something Mariah in case she's walking around the halls, you know, and it's like, it was just interesting. It was just all like psych, like not just creatively interesting, but psychologically interesting and like how, um, you know, learning really fast. It's like you just get thrown into the fire and you go with other art directors. I just, it was constant learning and meeting illustrators, like knowing that I was going to work on hip hop. I reached out to every graffiti artist that I could find in the New York area to like possibly bring them in on a project and meeting illustrators and photography reviews. Like it was, it was like at a grander scale. So taking all of that knowledge with me down to Tommy Boy, which was much, much smaller, um, it felt really good to be in a smaller place that was more like an indie. It wasn't an indie. Yeah, I guess it was an indie label um, at the time. And just, um, you know, just being more intimate with like the folks that you were working with in a way. So, you know, I shared an office with like two other art directors and you know, we would um, crowdsource in the office, like all the people that are, all the kids that are on the cover of Stakes is High are kids of the people that worked at Tommy Boy, like you know, the guy in the mailroom and, you know, one of the the legal people, like we just, you know, would, it was more like a DIY situation for certain things. And that was always kind of fun too. You know, it was like more intimate. So it's a real family type uh, situation behind the scenes yeah totally Totally. like we still have we still have get-togethers every now and then like every couple of years we'll have like an alumni reunion you know just like the folks that work there nice and i still talk to monica monica lynch is we still chat and she's doing amazing things as well you know post tommy boy life like she she recently curated this amazing show of hip-hop artifacts for sotheby's that um 
if you're into hip hop, you, you just walk around with your mouth hanging open of like the artifacts that were there that she curated herself. And that was pretty cool. So working with her was really fun. It's like another badass woman in kind of a man's world. And like, how do you, how do you navigate and, you know, maintain respect? And, um, yeah, so she, it was a great learning experience working with her too. What about psychoanalysis? What's the story behind designing principal psychoanalysis? It's illustrated by George Bates, who did a lot of work for Nickelodeon, right? Yes, yes. I met him working at Nickelodeon. He actually designed the font for Ren and Stimpy for us to use on all of their marketing materials, Dope. which was like kind of crazy because Ren and Stimpy was like the shit back then, right? So, so George like drawing Ren and Stimpy cereal boxes for us that we were making like promo materials and shit. So, um, but his style, if you ever get a chance to look at his website, it's so eclectic and crazy. And like, you know, you're looking in literally looking inside the mind of an artist. Like if you look at all of his work and I thought he was perfect for Prince Paul because that album in particular was like inside the the dark mind of mm. a lunatic, you know, and that was it's definitely Prince Paul's dark side. And yeah. it's also very funny and twisted and interesting and like nothing else that he had ever done. And like that is always like a high point for me, like, oh, shit, this is like nothing else you've ever done. This is great because we can make some art for you. That's like nothing else that you've ever done. That kind of gives you that license to, you know, explore a little bit deeper. So and Tommy Boy was there like, whatever you want to do. And Paul was like, whatever you want to do. He was just like, let's just show me and let's do it. And so George created that art that folds out, like from the CD cover, it folds out to this like poster where you're really visually digging into like all the crazy shit that you hear about on the album, like the dark, again, twisted, you know, it's a beautiful night for a date rape. It's, you know booty clap all the crazy songs that are on the album which is amazing and um you know we we just sort of made that like what you're seeing inside of this person's mind 
And um, and then on the other side of that fold out, it's really like the copy is all floating exactly how how I would get it in a document. Like usually you get this document with all the credits and everything and then you design it into the package. But I was like, fuck it, let's just keep it as exactly how I got it, like with crop marks, with like the bleed marks and just like flow it in as is and under design it because the front side was so lush and intricate and designed that I just wanted to go really sparse on the other side. And um, somehow this album art found its way into like a traveling Freudian based art show <laughs> that we don't know to this day. We don't know how it got there. Like Paul called me up afterwards and he's like, did you enter the artwork in any kind of, contests or shows or anything i was like no why he's like it's in a freudian-based art show in minnesota right now and i don't know how it got here <laughs> and we were like okay so you know somebody thought it was worthy of a freudian art show <laughs> and we, we kind of laugh about that and then he gave me a vhs vhs copy of Tuntas the cat from saturday night live because we used to laugh about Tuntas the cat all the time and that was that was my um, parting gift on working on that album with him. <laughs> yeah, he's an awesome, hysterical, amazing human. I love him. still listening to this episode and enjoying the podcast why not become a patron of fly fidelity at patreon.com slash fly fidelity becoming a patron means you are directly supporting our show and helping us to create a new episode each and every week it also means that as a thank you for being a super supporter you'll be able to access exclusive content to you including patron updates, offers and discounts, a monthly secret podcast, early access, and so much more. Talk about the challenge of having to express somebody else's identity in their terms, but in your own style and language. Well, let's see. I think that's part of where those initial conversations really become important, you know, whether it's like what you're talking about or the person's body language and how they're dressing and what the content of their album is about. And um, it could even be just discussions about things that aren't music or art related, you know, even though that, of course that's really important, like, and asking asking that person for, you know, what kind of things do you gravitate towards? You know, like, do you like, you know, if they're interested in things that are more abstract or more literal or what are they open to? Are they down to try something different? Um, One experience I had where you try to interpret a person for the image of their cover, like I had this, I remember having this really great conversation with Maxwell and we didn't really know who Maxwell was before his first album. But I remember listening to that cassette thinking like there's, I've never heard anything like this before. 
And when he came up to the office, his head was wrapped and he was very low key and kind of shy. And we started talking about um, things like soulmates because his album was very, it was very, that first album was very focused on like him losing like a love of his life. You know, it's like that whole story of meeting the person, having that amazing experience with the person and then losing the person and trying to get them back. It was like a very conceptual album about a soulmate and we we talked about soulmates for like a good hour and um it just gave such an insight to like the kind of person that he was and like wanting to project something that was a little bit more mysterious like if you go back and look at his first album he's not on the front cover he's on the back of the cover and for a brand new artist at the time like that in r&b and soul like that's really unusual to not have like you know, especially as handsome as he is and, and, and was at that time also. It's a risk. It, like, yeah, you're taking a big chance, but you're also creating this vibe and like of mystery and like intrigue for for the viewer. So like the front cover is like you see that wallpaper and at the bottom of the wallpaper is like a pair of women's heels. So it's telling a story without actually seeing the artist and it pulls you in and it's like, you know, finding artists who who have that vision of um, where they're like, I want my name on the on the cover really big or my face has to be this or I have to look like, you know, it was more about creating like a whole story without being literal. And it's like, you know, it, and it all started with the conversation, I think, of like, what do soulmates mean? Does Is it is it actually is it true? Is it possible to have one soulmate or are there a few soulmates and like you know, how do you, how do you live that life with yourself? You know, like all those kind of like, you know, deeper conversations about love and connecting with someone that were so interesting that kind of like led us down that path of like mystery and intrigue about, you know, him and his music and his, and his whole point of view. So. Do you miss mystery in hip hop and graphic design? Is that something you miss today? (laughs) All the time. Yeah. I love, I, I, I really do. Um, I love it. Like there's a million covers with people's faces on them and, you know, different ways of executing that are super interesting, but I think they're hard to come by. And then there are the ones that are like wild ass illustrations that like, you just want to look at it all the time and you display it on your shelf. Cause it's like, you know, maybe you're looking at it while you're listening to that album or you know i'm talking about this like we still listen to albums like most people are streaming things or whatever but it's like i you know this is me remembering like this is what i loved about it it's like looking at the album cover and trying to understand why they made that the way they did Mm. and connect to the music that you're listening to it's like you're you're it's like you're getting clues to the story of the cover within the music like that's how i feel like it's a successful cover you know it's like oh that makes sense now why they you know why they did that um so you know like i'll i'll name drop julian alexander who did 50 cents first album cover and it's like a bullet shot through glass and you don't you know, maybe it was just a graphic technique or is it something that actually relates to his life, which it did. And, you know, it's like that learning and connecting between like 
the image of the cover and the music and the person, which I think is really interesting. And some people are, aren't going that deep, but it's kind of fun when it does. What about perfection? What's your relationship with perfection? Do you ever worry about <laughs> errors in your work or do you embrace the errors and welcome them in? Um, I love accidents. I actually, I really absolutely love like a happy accident. You know, when in early in the computer days when something would like glitch on your screen and you're like, oh shit, that looks cool. And you try to like capture it or remake it or like even before that when we would make things sometimes like make things on the Xerox machine and that picture would shift while you were Xeroxing it and that looked really cool. Like, can we use that? And um, actually even a single cover, one of the single covers for Cool G Rap was an accident that became the cover and that's the cover for the single Fast Life, um, which is an actual fax that Suquan shot that, you know, we shot that together. And then um, back then we would confirm like which shot we want to get printed for something through a fax. So she's like, do you want this one or that one? And she faxed two different shots to me. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, I'm going to use this fax for the cover. Like, I don't even need a print. And I really thought they were going to shoot it down, but they didn't. Thank God. And it's like, you know, it's like, okay, here's my little clever <laughs> my little clever moment. Like, because a fax was the fastest way to transmit images and information back then, you know, more so than anything else. So that was the, co that's how the cover of Fast Life came about. And thank you, G-Rap, for not killing that. <laughs> What is it you consider essential elements for design and, and how do you bring tangibility into your work? Um, well, for me personally, I think my favorite thing is scale. Like I think scale changes everything. And if you get it right, it becomes like that much more impactful. Like if we're just talking like nitty gritty kind of design stuff, right? Um, and... What else? Authenticity is really important to me. Um, I love looking for something that's unexpected whenever you can, you know, like maybe like you like working with George Bates on Prince Paul's album cover was was kind of like a really nice moment of unexpected, like pairing two. I don't want to say opposites together, but George Bates was not like a renowned hip hop artist by any means. Like he was drawing things for like surf culture and Nickelodeon and um, David Carson, you know, like he was in some alternate world of illustration. So to bring something like that into hip hop was like, that's an interesting combination mm -hmm. to me. And but still managing to keep it authentic because he really like we really dug into that album and what was the the content of the album and um, just doing something different the same way that like hype was 
bringing a whole other look and feel to videos at the time, you know? So it's like keeping things moving forward. What about Um, lettering? I'm curious as to if you find that mm -hmm. whole process of lettering to be much of a meditative process, what what are you thinking about when you're creating? Uh, for lettering, well, I guess, like, the first, like, the easiest one to explain is, like, stakes is high, because that font, Cooper Black, was really, it was, it was, like, widely used for, like, hip-hop flyers in in the early days, like, computers, so you, if you look up, like, old-school hip-hop flyers, you're gonna see Cooper Black on almost every one of them at some point or other, and just going into that, like, you know, archival history of like that font within the within hip hop culture and bringing it into like stakes is high, but in a different way, you know, kind of connecting the dots there. So I love typography. That's probably like my first love of even before, like working with photography and illustrators and just like growing up drawing typography, like I said earlier, for like car wash flyers. <laughs> You know, and like getting different fonts, like Xeroxing fonts out of books and tracing them, you know, again, like coming up before computer age and like hand drawing and hand painting typography um, was one of my one of my favorite things. And then I have a poster on my wall that I see every single day when I'm working, which is like the most inspiring thing done by this artist named Greg LaMarche. And he did this cover for Mass Appeal magazine. Um, It's issue 16, Mass Appeal issue 16, if you ever look it up. And it's layers and layers of fonts and colors. And it's just like the most beautiful, like, mix of things. And it's so energetic and colorful. It just, like, inspires me in so many ways to just, like, look at typography differently for everything but just again like trying to keep it somehow authentic like connecting the dots somewhere and making it make sense and not just like oh that's a cool font like very often I'll default to something like trade gothic bold condensed that was like my favorite font for forever and ever and inspired by blue note album covers Clarendon bold and trade gothic like the most classic beautiful combination that has been also like transcends time into like jazz from jazz into hip-hop because hip-hop is sampling jazz sometimes you know and connecting the dots there so it's it's really interesting to me like what people choose and and why one of your craziest and most ambitious designs was the giant word cloud you did for trevor noah's daily show based on donald trump's (laughs) top 200 words Oh my God! Why do we have to talk? No, I'm just kidding. Um, like, do we? We don't. Need to bring we don't. T word into. This? Okay, so the funny part about that is that I went back to Comedy Central because I had been there for eight years, um, and going in there to work with, like, initially working on Chappelle's show, which is a whole other episode in itself, probably talking about that. But then coming back in, I guess it was like twenty. I don't know, maybe 2015 or 16, I went in to cover for somebody who was on a leave. And my first job was for Trevor Noah. I had to go into his office the very next day after day one 
and do a shoot for his Emmy campaign. It was like, great. I love Trevor Noah. Yeah. I can't wait to meet him. I have an hour in his conference room, set up a seamless, do a shoot with a photographer that I could grab, and then turn all that into like a giant Emmy campaign. I was like, this is amazing. I sure. Like, I love this. And then I wound up staying longer. And the last thing before I left, they're like, look, we're going to do a whole campaign about Trump's tweets. <laughs> And turn it into this like installation on Fifth Avenue and just really blow up like all of the crap he's been tweeting, you know, since he got on Twitter Uh and turn it into something, you know, like how he makes up names for people and he calls them stupid. And there was like a golden toilet that you could sit on and take a selfie. And it was like there's a whole book about it, actually. But the thing, the part that I had to work on was like the entranceway and taking this list of his most used words on Twitter. There was like 85 words that he used constantly and which you see in that word cloud and turn that into something that was like, you know, the first thing you see when you walk in the door. So arranging all of that type into something that created the shape of his head and by, you know, the biggest words are the ones that he used the most and et cetera. And I was like, this is how I'm ending my time (laughs) at Comedy Central. It's still a daily show project, but, you know, having to look at his profile for a few days as my last thing there, (laughs) it wasn't my favorite thing, but I still like, you know, that's where I get into typography, just like scale and making things fit and things are lining up. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of like tweaky little letter <sighs> spacing and, you know, kerning kind of stuff that's going on in there that like I could totally nerd out on that. So after a while, I forgot I was looking at Trump's head. Just <laughs> <laughs> focus on the words and the type. Well, yeah. there's a link to a cover that you later on do for Breeze Brewing, Devil's Advocate. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, (laughs) because um, the thing for Devil's Advocate, which was like the first single off of that album that I worked on with him. Yeah, which was really like another super fun experience. Um, So we only had, I only had like a day or something and I had to do a screen grab from the video that was shot. And I was like, I'm just going to take the most wildly inappropriate screenshot that I can find in this video and use that. And that's exactly what it is. It's like Trump with his finger up his nose. And then it was right before um, the election. So I highlighted the word, I highlighted the letters V O and T and E in the word advocate just for like a little subliminal messaging there. And, um, that's how that happened. <laughs> what about hindsight? How does that happen? What were your intentions behind designing that? Oh, um, well, so I've known Breeze for a really, really long time. Like since he showed up at New York and Poets Cafe back in the 90s when Bob was hosting like the open mic nights there that were incredible. So I remember like that was probably the first time I ever saw him perform and he might have been like maybe 19 or 20 at the time. And he just had such a um, distinctive style and flow and everything. I was like, wow, this guy's really interesting. And then he came out with like Clear Boo Skies and his, you know, the albums that he did with his family with the Juggernauts. Shout out to Kev Fever and Queen Heroine also yeah. on that. And um, 
Then, you know, he did a lot of work with his family. He did a lot of collabs, you know, with different artists like LP and Jay Trez and and uh, Aesop Rock. So now he's coming out with his first solo album. And, you know, after putting in so much work with his family and all of these other people that he's collaborated with, it was like, okay, this is your moment to have your, you know, sort of iconic album cover, um, grown man, like, let's, let's try things, you know, a little differently. Like it's, it's really just you and the introspective feeling that you bring, you know, to all of your music, like his music is, and his lyrics are just so layered and lush and you need to listen to things several times to really catch what's going on and I just have so much respect for his music so I just really wanted his album to be all about him and like the the hindsight that he was having about his music you know like because that album encompasses like over 10 years of music that's been archived that he's worked on with different people from like Black Milk to Seb Bash to um, Maceo and Spina and like people that are family and like he just put it all together in such a great way I just wanted that album to be like all about him and um, really pure photography with Michael Greenberg who's another incredible iconic photographer who's done a lot of hip hop stuff as well like under the radar like he's worked with everyone from like Rick Ross to Queen Latifah and you know we dragged him out to Rockaway Beach for that shoot you know we we did all that work in like an afternoon for everything for that album and um yeah I just wanted it to feel like very thoughtful and see a side of Breeze that we didn't normally see like there's he's not wearing a hat mm. he's not other people he's like his first solo thing and we took him to a place that he loves like he loves you know just being on a beach and maybe that's where he felt the most peaceful and introspective so we were able to capture that by bringing him to his happy place, you know. Well, there's a correlation with the beach, isn't there? And the first Juggernauts album with this colour blue we see. That blue speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, I think that ties to the to that song, Clear Blue Skies, which is like one of their most important songs, I think, that is, you know, it's never going to be irrelevant. It's like really about an interracial relationship and it's like wow we're still talking about that now like things of of this kind of nature you know but that was like one of the earliest songs I think about an interracial relationship and you know what clear blue skies means in that song and and it's so pure in a way on the cover that it's like you just can't deny it and then you hear the song and you know everything kind of clicks Damn 
the sun, I think it's time we had a little man to man talking. I heard that you was hand to hand walking down the boulevard, middle of the day with this black chick. Tell me the truth, boy, or you can catch this Let me get quick. this straight. You're ranting and raving, behaving like a mad dog with rabies because my baby's not white. That ain't right. Pops, you got me puzzled because in the past with the black folks, you never struggled. At least to my knowledge, your knowledge seems to need a little working. That little nigga bitch got you looking like a jerk and I can't take another minute. You and that black half the sun looking sort of like Tom Willis from the Jefferson Show. What you know about my girl to try and slander? Let me talk a bit and maybe you can understand the situation that I got. Is it messing with somebody cause this woman's taking care of both my mind and yeah, my yeah, body? Yeah, okay, I understand that she's attractive cause their bodies are just built to be sexually active. Maybe make it taking tax money for the welfare. Or maybe up on 42nd with the bodies that they sell there. So what's her name? Is it Shanae or Shaquana? Son, she's gotta be a corner. Well, I'm glad to see my father's in my corner. Oh, you think this shit is funny? I ain't joking. That's the last door. The camel's back has been broken. We talked about Naz earlier. What can you tell me about working with Big Noid for episodes of A Hustler? <laughs> oh, my goodness. That that was another adventure because myself and the photographer for that, my Lucas, who is from Paris, was in town. And um, she was able to work on that with me. And we just took uh took a cab out to Queensbridge which was an adventure in itself because cabs didn't want to go to Queensbridge <laughs> what year is this is this when the album comes uh, out the same year 96 I think, yeah I think it was 96 I think you're right and um so we get to the Queensbridge houses where he lived right. and of course the buzzer the buzzers where he lives doesn't work because it was like in the projects. Right. So, you know, we're hoping that he remembers to come downstairs at, you know, the time we agreed on and um, we're calling up to the window, you know, it's like real old school, like, yo, we're down here. <laughs> and he comes down and it was great. I mean, it was very like super um, almost like journalistic kind of shoot where we just sort of mm. walked around with him and he was very low key and, you know, tried to catch what we could in like an hour to make some work out of. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was interesting cause it was around the same time as Nas and of course from the same area that Nas was coming out of and, you know, trying to make that distinction between them you know, making sure that nobody was confusing him for like the other Nas or something, you know, which of course wasn't going to happen because Nas, <laughs> Nas was pushing forward, yeah. you know, the way that he did. So, um, yeah, it was a very subtle photo shoot. Thanks for sharing that. Outside of getting him out of the house <laughs> with no buzzer. Count Beastie's pre-life crisis is interesting in uh, <laughs> It becomes one of your few black and white designs next to Stakes is High. Mm -hmm. What's the story mm -hmm. behind that? Oh, man, I love that shoot because first, that was the first time I worked with Eric Johnson, who we, you know, we wound up working on a few other projects together, obviously, and just became 
really good friends. I learned so much from him about seeing and seeing beauty and things that were not perfect and not orchestrating things and letting things happen. And, you know, so many things I could, I could say about working with him that informed me and inspired me definitely. But so this is our first shoot together and we're flying down to Tennessee to meet up with Count Basie. And, and this is his first album and he's super enthusiastic and young and his music was really like innovative and it's like okay this and and we just really took him on a tour like not took him on a tour of where he lives but just like let's go in let's go into the woods and shoot let's shoot in front of this abandoned you know storefront let's um we just tried all these things like off the cuff and that was like one of another like really great experience of like where nobody is like monitoring us and we just kind of went off and like we went into an abandoned building and found this like shaft of light and we shot him there so then when we get to this fence which you see is the front cover and he wants his his crew to be with him and I think there were like five guys and they they all you know wanted to be a part of this and you don't want to exclude them at, at the same time you want Count Base D again to like be the star of his own album and not look like this is a group. It's right. him. It's really his album. So we shot a few pictures where he's sitting on that bench and the guys are around him. And then I was like, there's no way we were going to use this. So I asked them if they would go behind the fence and just like peek through it as, you know, part of part of the whole experience, not excluding them, but not being overshadowing and letting letting Dwight shine and they were cool with it. And it was like, you know, at the end, once they saw it, it all made sense. It wasn't like, Oh, we're not trying to get rid of you. <laughs> we don't want to exclude you. We want you to be part of it, but just be more subtle about it. And luckily it worked out that, you know, we can see them peeking through and being part of it. Such an effective cover. I love that cover. And also I got away with not putting any typography on it, which was, yeah. You know, ironic because I love typography, but at the same time, like, I didn't want to put anything on that cover. So the title and everything went on a sticker on the shrink wrap of the cover. So you won't, you know, normally in a store, you wouldn't see it with type on it. Like there, there might be type on it digitally for that reason. But when it was released, there was no, no copy on the front cover, which I loved. We've been talking about these amazing mainstream and independent projects and assignments you've been doing your entire career. How important is it to find a balance between personal work filling your soul and commercial work filling your fridge? <laughs> Ooh, that's a really relevant question at the moment because <laughs> because I do have a day job that is a really amazing, challenging, interesting job. For me personally, I don't know if it's like the creative soul filling job that, you know, we all kind of hope to have. So I find myself, um, you know, taking lots of side projects that are interesting. Like last year, I, I had mentioned that um, I worked on a book with Sue Kwan of all of her photography. And that really was like a dream project. So that is like totally filling my cup like creatively like working with her and Dana Alberella who's the publisher of Testify Books who put out 
so many hip hop books. Like if you look up Testify, you're going to see Where'd You Get Those by Bobito and you're going to see Street Level also by Sue Kwan and so many amazing hip hop cultural driven books that everybody needs on their shelves. So we get to work on this book last year and I can't work on it during the day because I have my day job. So it's nights and weekends for like four months to put this book together. And I, I literally couldn't wait for the weekend just to work on that, not just to like have a weekend, but it was really a dream project. Like they took a thousand or more of Sue's pictures from 1988 to 2008. Wow. And that is Wu-Tang and Biggie and Beastie Boys and the shoot we did together. We did Freddie Fox in Rikers Island and then Cool G Rap. And she shot like De La Soul sleeping in the back of a cab. Like she's like fly on the wall for like everyone you can think of, Nas included, like everybody. And edit they edited the thousand down into like maybe four or 500 and then we edited that down into what you see in the book which is about 300 or so pictures um and so having that like that would keep me going through days at work where like I don't feel very creative today or I feel like I did a lot of administrative work today but you know like like you said you gotta fill the fridge and Mm. baby needs new shoes and Mm. kids gonna go to college next year so I feel really lucky to have you know this position at Twitter at the moment that is creative in other ways, but as far as like designing, graphic designing and art directing hands-on, like I, I need something like that on the side almost all the time. Um, so yeah, it keeps me sane. It's ish. <laughs> sane, sane ish. Or working on Breeze's cover. Like that was, you know, all of a lot of the things you see that are on my website are are side projects. You know, when I'm right. able to fit them in. What's next for Michelle Williams? <laughs> um, next for next for me is um, I would love to do a few more books because that was such a great experience, like passion, definitely passion project kind of thing. Um, I'm going to continue just connecting people in the culture with each other wherever I can, like artists with illustrators, photographers, you know, experiential, anything, um, doing these side projects. And if I had enough side projects that where I could like leave my day job, I would, but I'm not there yet. Like I, I, I'm getting really picky about the side projects that I'm working on, they have, it has to feel really good. So a further, a further future moment is like a waffle cafe slash DJ lounge slash art gallery somewhere. I don't know if it's in New York or if it's in New Paltz or if it's in New Mexico or if it's in New Jersey, I don't know where it's going to be, but I know that at some point I will have something else that's like not, on the computer. Interesting. Interesting. 12 hours a day. <laughs> there it is. And it's doing things with my hands and it's curating and it's like music is there. Art is there. I love making waffles. I have this whole like other side hustle where I do waffle. I started making waffles at APT with Bobito DJing back in like 2001. He had a party called Waffles and Falafels. 
and I was the waffles part of that. So we had two turntables set up on the bar and I had two waffle irons set up right next to him. And it was like the fun, you know, one of the funnest times of, you know, the early two thousands that we had. And, um, I remember Drez from black sheep was mad at me because he thought I gave my waffle his waffle to somebody else. (laughs) And I'm like, where dude, I'm making you waffle right now. He's like, I need my waffle. You know, it was just like wild wild times so now i do waffles for events like i'm doing waffles in october at beer wax which is one of the best bars in brooklyn ever where my brother dj susio smash djs so he and we call it butter rican so he's the rican i'm the butter because i'm doing the waffles and he's puerto rican so we'll have a night where he plays and he only plays vinyl there and i bring my waffle iron out and we just you know have a party, and that's like a, ha- a very happy place for me. Shout out to Sushio, good guy. <laughs> I love him. That's my brother. I had him on our old show we used to do back in the day. Michelle Willems, I want to say thank you for taking part <laughs> on this episode and spending as much yeah. time as you have. You've been really generous with your time. Oh, please, dude. Thank you for inviting me. It's like it always feels like kind of weird to talk about everything. And it's like, wow, I've had I've had some really interesting and fortunate times. And I feel really lucky to have been here, you know, in this in in like hip hop culture and this industry in like the 90s and 2000s and even like late 80s. And I'm just really happy and grateful and you know, it's kind of fun to share the stories. Everybody keeps telling me to write a book, but I don't think I'm a good writer. So thanks for inviting me on. Your show. We're lucky <laughs> and really appreciate it for your contributions. I want to say thanks for everything you've done and continue to do. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm happy, happy to be here and, you know, holler if you need anything. appreciation for this podcast i wish i could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when fly fidelity updates because it's so great but i don't think there's a way i can do any of those things Uh oh you're wrong (laughs) subscribe on spotify apple podcasts and soundcloud and never miss an episode find us on twitter instagram and facebook my people saw you with me where you were